0: Why don't you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28 this afternoon. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to start by reading the first section of this chapter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, we're going to start in verse 1. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Jesus is alive. The king is risen from the dead. This isn't a myth. This isn't an old wives' tale, old folklore. This is the truth. Jesus came to this planet, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for sinners, and rose again from the dead. He is alive. He accomplished what he set out to do. He came to save people from sin. Again, he did so by dying on the cross and rising from the dead in their place, so that those who would believe in him would be dead to their sins. And they, themselves, if they believe in Jesus would be raised to new life in Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled his mission. He fulfilled his mission. So my question for you today is, what's yours? What's yours? In light of this great salvation that you've received, Christian, what is your mission? Why are you here? This is critical. This is so important for Christians to understand. There are so many people who attend church on Sundays. They read their Bibles. They even pray together. They raise good, moral children. They live a moral life, but they've forgotten the mission. They've forgotten the reality of why they are still here. Listen, Christian, Jesus did not save you to make your life comfortable. Jesus didn't save you to protect you from the world or pull you out of it into the comfortable Christian bubble. Jesus didn't save you so that you could give your children a classic education. Jesus didn't save you so that you can purchase a wonderful house or live in safety. If you want all that, go to heaven. <laughs> there you'll find true comfort, peace, safety, And you will be without the sinful muck of the world, only in heaven. So the question is, when you were saved from your sins, when Christ transformed your life, why didn't he just rapture you up to heaven? Why are we still here? Well, it's because we have a mission. Christ has given us a mission. And the mission is this. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ commands them. That's our mission. This is our mission, Summit Bible Church. It's both corporate and individual. It's both the church's mission and the Christian's mission. It's global and local. It's to be applied here and elsewhere And you'll be accountable for it in the end. Are you on mission? Are you missionally minded? Well, I'm kind of pushing the cart before the horse here, okay? Because we're going to split this passage into a three-part series. And the passage that we're going to look at is verses 16 to 20 here. In Matthew 28, you're in the chapter. Verses 16 to 20, we're looking at the Great Commission. And today, we're looking at the setup, if you will. The first three verses that kind of set up the command of the mission. So we'll learn more about our mission next week. And then the week following, we're going to just study one of the most comforting phrases in all of Scripture. That last section of the Great Commission. I am with you always to the end of the age. So today, we start with the setup of the King's mission. The king's mission, and we're looking at verses 16 to 18 here in Matthew chapter 28. Look at verse 16 with me. It says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Go back to verse 16. Look at that first little phrase there. Now, the 11. 11 disciples. Well, if you think back, you'll remember there were 12, right? Jesus had 12 disciples. Where did one of them go? Well, we know from the earlier account in the gospel that one of them, Judas Iscariot, betrayed the Lord and killed himself. He's dead. Judas this man who lived with Christ and did and participated in all the same things that the other disciples did was now gone. He revealed himself to not be a true disciple but he was in it for greed. And it just goes to show this is just kind of a sobering reminder there's 11 of them this is a sobering reminder that not everyone who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ is a true disciple of Jesus Christ. There's now 11 men. 11 disciples left. And what makes these men unique? These 11? (laughs) Well, simply put, they just show up. They show up. I mean, these are not extraordinary men. These are ordinary men. Let's look at these remaining 11. We have some fishermen. We have a former zealot. We have a retired tax collector, a couple of tradesmen, maybe, ordinary men. I would include ordinary and weak men. You remember Peter, the supposed strong man of the group, the outspoken one? He denied the Lord three times. Almost just as bad as a betrayal. And then the rooster crowed. And even after he had seen Christ risen from the dead, you know what Peter did? He went back to his old job, purposeless, aimless, and defeated. That's Peter, the leader of the pack. You have Thomas. You know Thomas's nickname, Doubting Thomas? Thomas didn't believe the testimony of the women who came to tell them that they had seen Christ risen from the dead. He didn't believe it. Thomas, in addition, didn't believe the disciples who saw him in that first appearance. Doubted the resurrected Christ twice and didn't believe it until he actually saw it and touched him. Doubting Thomas. And then you have James and John, the sons of thunder. The sons of Zebedee. After seeing the resurrected Christ, these strong men, if you will, they just followed Peter back to the old job. Aimless, purposeless, defeated. These are the great disciples that receive the great commission. These are the men who would become apostles, who Christ would use to build the church. Ordinary men receive an extraordinary mission. Weak men receive extraordinary strength to accomplish the mission. Listen, if if we know anything about these disciples and this great commission... If we can learn anything from them, we can learn that the king's mission does not depend on the talent and strength of the missionaries. God often uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, God uses weak things to shame the strong. All God requires from you is a willingness to be used. Show up. Show up to receive the call and the mission. And be faithful to obey all that he commanded you. You might think today, oh, I'm, not, I'm not special. I'm no extraordinary. I'm not an apostle. No, but if you have been transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ, and you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ, then you can be used in this great commission just as these men were. Absolutely. I mean, I think about Isaiah. The prophet who stands before holy God and recognizes that he's a man of unclean lips. Isaiah sees God and he falls prostrate onto the ground. Immediately recognizes his utter weakness. He is unable to do anything because he is a sinner and he has sinned with his lips. But the God of mercy extends a coal. The seraphim comes with the coal and cleanses his lips. And after he's forgiven, God asks whom shall i send and isaiah just has enough strength to say here i am send me god uses weak men god uses the sinner god uses ordinary christians to fulfill his extraordinary mission god can absolutely use you if he can use these men if god can take aimless, weak, even doubting disciples and give them purpose, strength, and assurance He can do the same with us. All we have to do is show up, receive the task that He calls us to and the task that He strengthens us to accomplish. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we've failed many times. But are we willing? Are we willing? The 11 disciples went to Galilee. Now, Galilee should sound familiar. It was said three times in this chapter. Matthew emphasizes it three times. If you go back to verse 6 and 7, the angel give the Mary's specific instruction. Go quickly, tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. Jesus reemphasizes it. In verse 10 of Matthew 28, Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And then, of course, we see it right here. The 11 disciples followed instructions. They showed up at Galilee. Now, I had to ask myself as I'm studying this, why is Galilee significant? Why did Jesus command them to go to Galilee? And what I found was, Incredible. I I love, by the way, when you study the scriptures and you're studying and looking and cross-referencing, when you start to see something new, when you start to see a connection across the passages. That's the most exciting part. It's like finding the treasure at the bottom of the cave, the treasure that you're mining for. I found some incredible connections to Galilee in the scriptures. So I'm excited about it and I want to share it with you. Why don't you turn back to the beginning, Matthew chapter 4. Back to where we started in this series. Matthew chapter 4. Why is Galilee significant? Why is it emphasized here in this chapter? Let's go back to where we started. I see three, three significant features of Galilee. Just this place that the disciples received the commission. First of all, the first significant f- feature, if you're writing this down, is that Galilee is where Jesus' ministry started. Galilee is where Jesus' ministry started. First significant feature. Remember, when we looked at the king's, uh, the king's message and we looked at the gospel, we saw that Jesus starts his ministry with preaching. In Matthew 4.17, we looked there, Jesus began to preach. That's how he starts his ministry, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what we didn't note at the time was where he started his preaching ministry. Just scroll up to verse 12. After he had been tempted in the wilderness, he heard that John had been arrested, and so he withdrew into where? Galilee. Interesting. Interesting. Matthew notes, I would say, even emphasizes that Matthew both start or sorry that Jesus both starts and ends his ministry in Galilee. Jesus comes full circle here. That's significant feature number 1. Jesus both starts and ends his ministry in Galilee and Matthew notes that. The second significant feature of Galilee is that this is where the disciples' ministry started also. This is where the disciples were called. You're in Matthew 4. Look back up to verse 18. While walking, Jesus, by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then then in the next verses, he calls the sons of Zebedee, James and John. Galilee is where the disciples' ministry started. Jesus takes them back to the very place that they were called. Not coincidentally, but providentially. So while the disciples thought that they were going back to Galilee to resume their lives as fishermen, Jesus took them back to fulfill his promise and make them fishers of men. Wow. The Lord, even using the location to emphasize his promise, and he's going to keep it. Isn't that cool? He takes the disciples back to where they, dis- where they started, to remind them of why they started. Jesus didn't call them to be, continue as fishermen. He called them to be fishers of men, to make disciples to a great mission. And he who began a good work in them will see it through to completion. You can be confident of the same thing, Christian. Even though you are weak, even though you fail, even though you sometimes wander aimlessly without direction, Jesus, the ultimate model, the ultimate disciple maker who begins a good work in you, will bring it to completion. It's encouraging. So Galilee is where Jesus' ministry starts and ends. Galilee is where Jesus called the disciples. It's where their ministry started. And he brings them back to reemphasize his promise to make them fishers of men. And the third significant feature of Galilee is that Galilee is of the Gentiles. Galilee is of the Gentiles. We're in Matthew 4 still. I want you to go back to verse 13. Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus starts his ministry in Galilee to fulfill a prophecy. The light has come. Jesus, the light of the world, has come even to the land of the Gentiles. See, the Jews thought Jesus was coming coming for them exclusively. They thought Yahweh is our God and, and nobody else's. He was supposed to be their king to save them out of the nations. No, Jesus came to save sinners out of their sin. Men and women from every nation, including the Gentiles. His salvation, his light is offered to all the nations. Acts chapter 10. God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him, as for the word that he he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning in Galilee. Jesus is about to give his disciples his kingdom mission to reach the nations with the gospel, And make more disciples. And he tells them this at Galilee as if to say, the mission starts here. The mission starts here and continues out to all of the nations. Salvation is not just for Israel, but to all. We just read that. Romans chapter 9. And this was God's purpose all along. Isaiah 49, to make Israel as a light for the nations that His salvation may reach the end of the earth. This is God's mission. To reach the nations with the good news, not just America, but out beyond the United States of America. To all people groups in all nations, to reach the nations with the good news, to make disciples of all the nations. And so Galilee is not just a place they go to. It's not just another mountain in Israel. This is a strategic place that Jesus takes them to. A place of significance. I love that. I love seeing that in the context and how Jesus, the perfect storyteller, brings it all together. Look at verse 17. How do the disciples respond when they see him? Look at verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I love this. This is just honest and vulnerable. Listen, if you're trying to make a case for something, let's say the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're not going to add in that there were some doubtful testimonies. That doesn't support your argument, does it? But Matthew here is giving us the honest truth, the history of what happened. And in his honesty, it almost brings more integrity to the Scriptures Because Matthew honestly says that some of the disciples doubted. They were hesitant. They were unsure when they saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. And I love that. I love love that Matthew records that honestly because it just reflects in, in my own life as well. If I'm honest, there's hesitant worship in my life as well. The word for doubted here in verse 17 is distazzo. It, it finds it, its root in the word duo. You know, duo means two. Uh, distazzo, it means essentially that a man has his feet in two places. One is wavering and one is firm. If for the disciples, the case is that they have one foot in the firm foundation of faith in Jesus Christ and their other foot is wavering in doubt. In uncertainty, and fear. I grew up going to the lake with my parents. They owned a, a little wreck boat. We would do all kinds of fun things, wakeboarding, tubing, skiing, and so on. I remember one of the most difficult things is docking a boat amidst a windy or a choppy day out on the water because the water is making the boat move up and down, and the boat is just wavering in the waves, but the dock is firm. And so I remember my dad would ask me to hold on to the dock, right, with one hand or one arm, and then hold on to the boat with the other while he would strap it around the cleat, or he would tie the boat around the cleat. I remember one time, it was such a choppy day, and the wind's howling and everything, this leg is on the boat going like this, and then this, my right leg, is firm on the dock. Similarly, the posture here for the disciples is that they believe, but they're doubting, they're wavering, they're hesitant. They're unsure. Most of the time I have a, a beard, a short, stubbly beard, and every so often, rarely, I shave it, clean shaven. And sometimes when I do this, I know my little son, Reagan, he's two years old, when he sees me, he knows that it's dad... But he's a little bit unsure. He's a little bit hesitant. And so he's smiling, but he's like, stay away from me, stranger. I imagine there's a similar response here from the disciples. We see them hesitate. Some are unsure. I love this, again, because it's honest. It's human. Do you relate? Do you relate to these men sometimes? I don't want you to get the picture here that these are a a lineup of soldiers standing at attention, ready to receive their orders from their commanding officer. No, these are tattered men crawling up this mountain, unsure, scared, they're weak, but they're willing and they're worshiping. Doesn't that describe our faith sometimes? When the world around us is chaotic, we're unsure, there's not a lot of stability in life, right now. We're unsure about what the government is going to do next. We're unsure about the posture of other people around us in such a vulnerable, volatile climate. But one thing we can be sure in is the rock, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And even though sometimes we approach Him in worship, we're unsure, we're doubtful, but we're there and we're willing. And God can use a worshiper like that. God can use a weak, Even vulnerable, even sometimes unsure and hesitant worshiper. He uses these disciples. Man, I think about the father in Mark chapter 9. Who begs Jesus to help his little boy who has this unclean spirit. He says, Jesus, if you can do anything, please have compassion on us and help us. Jesus says, if you can All things are possible for those who believe. And I love the Father's response here. He says immediately, I believe, help my unbelief. That's how we need to approach our Savior. That's how we ought to approach our King in prayer. When we're struggling with doubt, when we're wavering and unsure, we approach the Savior in prayer and say, I believe, help my unbelief, strengthen my faith. God can use a worshiper who's willing, who comes to him, even sometimes hesitant. Some at Bible Church, though, you need to know we serve a mighty king, one who meets us in our weakness and doesn't leave us there. He meets us in the instability. Even when we are hesitant, he strengthens us and he comforts us and he still uses us. We can be men and women that God uses. I love how Jesus responds to the disciples' hesitancy here in verse 18. And Jesus came. I love that. Jesus draws closer. Jesus doesn't stand back and bark orders from afar. He comes near to the disciples, almost as if to say, Here, it's me, men. He draws near. As they draw near to him. And Jesus tells them what they really need to hear. And this is the point that we're going to camp on at the end here. Jesus tells them what they really need to hear. He says this at the end of verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What's Jesus saying here? Summit, we need to pause here and really focus on this truth before we go into the command of the mission next week. But this is the buttress, the foundation, the solid rock upon which the Great Commission lies. It's not the strength of the missionaries, it's not the talent of the missionaries. It's not the speaking abilities, preaching abilities of these missionaries. It's not their speed at which they reach the nation. The foundation, the strength, the authority behind the Great Commission is the King Supreme, Jesus Christ. Write this down, if you write down anything. Jesus is King Supreme. He is sovereign ruler over all. He is the King of Kings and Lord of lords and that is all the strength and power you need to fulfill his great commission you serve the king supreme all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me well when does this happen his power his position was a gift well a gift from who and why There are two passages that paint this heavenly scene for us. One in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. Amazing, amazing heavenly scene of this gift exchange. Incredible. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. Daniel prophesies, he sees this vision that would come about ahead of his time. Daniel 7.13 But he describes the scene in which the Ancient of Days presents Jesus with all power and authority. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Can you imagine the scene? Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead, ascended before the ancient of days. God the Father seeing his Son, the holes in his hands and his feet, smelling the smoke of his wrath that was poured out upon him and he's pleased. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The son who was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The champion who was victorious over sin and death and rose again from the grave. He was presented before him and to him was given Dominion and glory in the kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus has a kind of power no other king has. Jesus has authority over all. He's not a limited government authority. He is the unlimited governing authority. The governor over all things. And was presented that by his father. Paul gives us kind of the whole picture. Not just who gave the gift, but why the gift was given. Turn in your Bibles to the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Paul gives us the whole picture of this heavenly scene. The Father highly exalting the Son. Why did He do so? Philippians 2 explains. Philippians 2, verse 6. Start with verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, for that reason, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth total dominion, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth because he is the salvation champion. He surrendered to the will of His Father. He surrendered His rights, His glory, His position. He became a man to fulfill all righteousness. He surrendered to death on a cross for your sake. And He rose victorious over sin and death, and so God highly exalted Him. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. What a statement. What a statement. This is our king. This is the king whom we serve. Now, why does this matter? Why does this matter for us to carry out his mission? Well, first of all, it should strike fear in our hearts. For the true king who is above and over all, we should honor him and worship him above all and other kings. But why does it matter? Here's why. By his authority, Jesus not only has the right to issue the marching orders, but also the ability and strength to help you carry them out. By his strength, you fulfill the great commission. Looking and depending upon his strength, his power, his authority, will give you the strength, the courage, to complete and fulfill his great Commissions, I I love what Calvin says. Calvin says, Never, certainly would the apostles have had sufficient confidence to undertake so arduous an office if they had not known that their protector sitteth in heaven and that the highest authority is given to him. For without such a support, it would have been impossible for them to make any progress. But when they learn that he to whom they owe their services is the governor of heaven and earth, this alone was abundantly sufficient for preparing them to rise superior to all opposition. Jesus says, I am king, king supreme. Therefore, go, fulfill my mission, and gather to me the people that I have already claimed. Man. Christian, don't forget who you really serve. Don't forget the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You serve the King supreme. He has all authority and power. He, only, he not only calls you to a great mission, but provides the power and strength for you to carry it out. This is the strength of the great commission. It is in Jesus Christ. It's not in the missionaries. It's not in us. Yes, we are responsible to go to carry it out. Yes, it's a great pleasure and joy to fulfill the Great Commission, to do what God has called us to. But just know this, He doesn't need you, but He chooses to use you. What a privilege. Just another application point here. Can't help but say it. Let us not be so concerned about who is elected to American offices, but let us be motivated and driven by who sits above all earthly offices. Just a reminder of that. Which king do you fear? Which king do you serve? The supreme king with all authority or the little kings with very limited authority? question remains, who will stand for the king who has all authority to fulfill his mission for his glory and our good? What an exciting setup for the words that Jesus is about to give in his great mission command. And we're going to look at that next week. Just remember, God can use anybody. He uses the 11, ordinary men with an extraordinary mission. That when these disciples see him, they respond and worship, hesitant worship, worship nonetheless. They were willing. And just a reflection of our weakness. In our hesitancy, our doubts, go to the Lord if you're hesitant. Go to the Lord with doubts, with fears, with anxieties. Go to Him. Don't run far from Him, but go to Him. He'll meet you in your weakness. He'll meet you in your anxiety. He'll meet you in your fear. And He has an authority above all other authorities. He has a power above all other powers. You can trust Him. And you absolutely can serve him for his glory and our good. Next week we look at the main command of this mission. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I just marvel thinking about the scene of heaven, where you looking down at your son, so pleased. He's the champion. He lived the perfect life that I couldn't live. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. And he rose again from the dead. He deserves all glory and praise. We worship him. And we recognize his authority and power in heaven and on earth above all things. God was such a mighty king We are, it is a privilege to be in his service. It is a joy. Lord, despite the chaos around us, despite living in what looks like a declining nation, despite the divisions, the hate, God, it is a comfort to know that we as Christians serve the heavenly king. That you are with us. And that you will fulfill your great commission and you choose to use us. And that is a privilege and joy, but you don't need us. And Lord, we know that one day you will bring all your people to saving faith, saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. And then you're going to come back and you're going to rule here. And we look forward to that day. We look forward to that day. God, I pray that you keep us hopeful, that you keep us joyful. That you keep us pressing on and looking forward, fulfilling our great commi- or the great commission you've given us, with the hope set before us of seeing you one day in heaven. In Jesus' name, Amen.